If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 451. It is Wednesday, June 9, 2010, and today what we're going to be talking about is something kind of cool and different, a little bit of a change-up. I thought I'd do a show on seven underrated rifle calibers, and uh, I mean, all of these things can definitely be used for home defense, That that's true, and, and they could all be used in, in tactical situations. Uh, some of them would actually make damn good long-range sniper rounds, but that's really not the uh, the genre we're going to talk about them today. And part of being an American and being self-sufficient goes back to the days where uh, our forefathers went out across this land and they fed themselves, and they fed themselves in a variety of ways. One was by foraging off the land. Um, another was through fishing. Another was through trapping. Uh, another was through cultivating small farms and gardens wherever they would settle. But the biggest way was to put meat in the pot through the skilled use of the firearms of the time, which, going back to what I'm talking about, we're talking about black powder, and we're talking about, at the latest stuff, the early uh, black powder centerfire rifle cartridges. And that, that history is in us. Even if we came here, if we have immigrant families that came here, uh, after those days, like I, my family came here uh, in the very late 1800s and the other half in the very uh, early 1900s, and those days were sort of settling out at that point, I still feel like I'm connected to those forefathers because my family came to America to become Americans, not just to partake of America and leave. And I've grown up here, and I have history here, and I was born here, and I think most of you probably feel the same way. So I think we're connected to that. And for those of you who listen around the world, there's probably a similar history in your country. Now, due to your laws in some nations, you may be more separated than we are uh, from it. But I think you'll still get an interesting show today. So that's what we're going to talk about. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and, and talk about... Um, our sponsors with our daily housekeeping segments. Sponsor of the day number one is Ready Made Resources. Hey, what more can you ask from a company than to uh, tell you who they are, what they are, and what they do in their name? And that's what Ready Made Resources does. All the resources you need for your disaster planning and your emergency planning, all in one place, ready to go. Everything from uh, tools for your garden to uh, long-term storage, 12-volt products to go with your solar and or wind projects, and everything else in between. So check out Ready-Made Resources today. I know that uh, they're going to take good care of you over there because every time I've ordered from them personally, they've taken good care of me. Next up today is Sawtooth Tactical. If you want the tactical stuff, the, the tactical uh, and the practical, I guess, in one place, things like Maxpedition bags, Magpaul mag magazines and other really cool stuff. Check out Sawtooth Tactical. Another owner operated and run operation where they take care of the customer and they're happy to do business uh, on a, on a uh, kind of a first name basis if you want to do it that way. And they definitely make things right if anything goes wrong. And they usually toss in a little extra if you let them know you ordered from the Survival Podcast, whether that be a hank of rope or, or some other little goodie or doodad. They tend to try to, uh, to take care of people from the TSP audience. So when you order from them, let them know that you are a, a listener to TSP. Uh, next up, remember to connect with us on our social media network outlets, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I'm making a consorted effort to be more involved, specifically with Twitter and Facebook. Uh, I'm pretty decent about posting to my Facebook page, my profile page, my wall, and commenting back. But what I'm going to really try to do is we have a fan page, and I'll put a, I might even change the, the Facebook link on the site to the fan book page. I'm going to try to go into that fan page every single day and answer as many people as I can that make a post on that fan book page. I'm also trying to respond to tweets a little bit better. I'm trying to get better about using Twitter. That was a struggle for me, but I know a lot of you guys like that, so uh, get involved with that. The YouTube channel is growing really nicely. Make sure you subscribe to that. I'm going to be doing a video today, another gardening one, 
on um, dealing with blight with tomatoes, and that's something a lot of people have asked about, and I'll show you what's working for me this year and what's not, and I'll show you a cool product in that video uh, that I think if I would have used it earlier, I would have more success this year. It's called Serenade, if you want to just look it up. It's Serenade, and it's an antifungal. It's also organic and uh, doesn't harm things, so you might want to check that out, too. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Um, along with a bunch of free ebooks. In fact, there's over $100 worth of free ebooks. You get discounts uh, from over 20 vendors right now, things that, that are really cool, like 7% off on uh, silver from the End the Fed Coin Project. That alone is a, a pretty nice discount. Uh, you get a free lifetime membership to Safe Castle Royal. That would cost you 29 bucks if you bought it outright. So there is definitely a huge return of investment in the Members Brigade if you want to help support this show at 20 cents an episode. Last call today that I'm going to do for video pictures for the uh, the upcoming slideshow video to the Revolution is You, our new theme song. Again, I need pictures of uh, people fishing and construction projects. Uh, those are the ones. And uh, I just got some great ones from somebody on uh, water harvesting. That was cool, too. So anything like that uh, that you think might fit in there well, get me a picture. Please don't embed them in emails. Please attach them as files or send me a link to where I can find them online. Either way will work better than embedded. Some, there's some weird ways some of you guys embed them, and I can't actually extract them as JPEG. So attach as a file, not embed into the email. All right, uh, last but not least, wrap up on the server issue. I think we're past it. I think it's over. I don't need any more suggestions on new hosts. It looks like HostGator has come through. Uh, part of it was my fault. I went a little bit crazy. Uh, encoding voice audio at 96 kilobytes was a little bit overboard, to say the least. Uh, hopefully, everybody can live with the audio quality going forward. I'm going to try to push it up a little bit once I figure out how to balance some things out. I will not be going to torrents or things like that, folks. Those that are suggesting that, I understand how they work. I understand why they're great. But when they fail, who do you call? Who do you call and say, it's down, it's not working? Uh, it's important to me that I run this operation like what it is a business. And that means if something goes wrong, I can make a phone call and get it fixed for you. That's what it's really all about, is making sure that these shows are available on demand for you. Um, and there's, you know, I've got to do certain things like pulling back the audio compression rates and things like that if I don't want to make other choices like, you know, only making the most recent 50 shows available and making you pay for everything older than that. I don't want to do that, right? So because I don't want to do that, I have to adjust and, and, and make some further adjustments, but I think I've got it all figured out now. So thanks for your suggestions. And we will be doing some server balancing things with uh, some server redundancy to try to prevent grief in the future. Just know that any site can go down. In fact, we were down yesterday. had nothing to do with HostGator. It was another host that actually hosts the main site. And uh, they just had a server fart, basically. So with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of the show. As I was saying in the beginning, I believe that we have our roots as riflemen in America. And I believe uh, throughout most of the world, you do too. You've just been separated from them. And... I really think that, you know, there's a place that we need to look back at the history of the cartridges that we have today, and we need to look at maybe the cartridges that were intermediates, how we got from, you know, black powder smokeless to modern 300 magnums, or uh, to things like, you know, the, the, the 300 Remington Ultra Magnum, or the Weatherbees, uh, or even things like the 338 Winchester Magnum. What were the were the gaps in between them? How do we how do we get the 44 Magnum? Where did it come from? Uh, things like that. And as I was thinking about that and maybe doing a little bit of a history, I thought what well, would be more entertaining along with the education than just telling you how these cartridges were created was to look at some of those first evolved cartridges. Some of the things that you know either were the foundation that others were built upon. Uh, or were just really old cartridges that have kind of been forgotten about and nothing else has really been built on them. Um, just different cool stuff that is also highly effective and has a place in the modern gun cabinet that, had, that fills a niche that the really light power or the really heavy power doesn't, that middle ground, so to speak. Uh, a lot of these cartridges started out, uh, their, their, their world is a Wildcat cartridge. Before I tell you what a Wildcat is, if you don't know, let's talk about something uh, first that always comes up when you start talking about calibers that are maybe a little bit oddball. And these aren't all oddball. Some of them are, though. 
Uh, and that is, why do you need to do that? You know, the 3006 for large gain down, anything other than really big bears and moose in North America is all you need. It's all you'll ever need. Put it together with a 22 center fire and a 22 rim fire, and you're done. You don't need any other rifle cartridges. Uh, and then you have the prepper that says, you know, if you're out there with that 6.5 millimeter Swede or that, you know, 280 Remington or 22 Hornet, all of which we're going to talk about today, and the shit hits the fan and we go into crisis mode and ammo starts drying up, I'm going to be able to find 308s and 3006s uh, long after you can't find any more 6.5 Swede. And I want to bust today. I've done this before. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to bust your bubble with this common caliber myth crap, folks. We went through an ammo shortage about 18 months ago. And you know what? When I went down to Academy and I looked for 3006 and 308 and uh, 7.62 by 39, when I looked for all of the common calibers, 223, 5.56 in the mil-spec version, uh, you know what I found? Nothing. Nothing at all. Empty shelves. 9mm. 45 ACP. Gone. 40 Smith & Wesson. Gone. You know what I found with no problem? 44 Magnum. 22 Hornet, 280 Remington, 3030 Winchester, 35 Remington, 7mm 08, and I can go on and on. There was ammunition there. There was lots of ammunition on the shelves. It was the common stuff everybody shoots that disappeared first, which makes perfect sense, folks. Think about it. If you have a situation where there is 20,000 cases of 16-gauge shotgun shells, In 20 million cases of 12-gauge shotgun shells, it seems like the 12-gauge shotgun shells are in greater supply relative to demand. But if there's 30 million people with 12-gauge shotguns competing for those boxes of shells, and there's only 100,000 people competing for the 16-gauge shells, and because they're an oddball caliber, those people tend to be reloaders in the first place, or an oddball shot size, I should say, in this shot shell size in this case, there's actually less demand even as we move into a shortage or a crisis, here's the reality. If you really want to make sure you have ammunition available, store it now. Store it in greater supply than you think you'll need. Learn how to reload. Store components, which includes powder, uh, slugs, if it's shotgun, shot shell, and wads, and powder, or um, and uh, uh, bullets and slugs. Right. Store what you need. Store it now. Get it now while you can. Put it away just like food. But if you are walking around with the misconception that during the shit at the fan it's going to be easy to barter for 308 or easier to find 308 than 2506, you're misleading yourself. Because in those situations, uh, all ammunition is going to be hard to come by. Could you end up in situations where once things start to kind of come back to normal, it's a little bit easier to find some of these things? Sure. My point is, why limit yourself to one gun? Why not consider some of these oddball calibers? Because I'd rather have a 2506 that's loaded up and ready to go than a 308 where I have no ammunition left. Just some thoughts. Because uh, I know I'm talking to preppers here, and that's one of the concerns that, that I often hear. I just heard from a guy that said about 16-gauge. I don't believe in them. I said, well, I don't believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, but I believe in the 16-gauge. I've got two of them up in my uh, closet. And he said they don't come in enough configurations. So I said they come in pumps, bolt actions. I've even seen a lever action. They come in doubles. They come in semi-autos. What am I, you know, single shots? What am I missing? Because I mean in shell configurations. Whatever. I, you know, you give up at it for a point with people. Um, but the reality is that it's up to you how available anything is to you based on your storage and your production capabilities. All right. I also want, before we, we go into these cartridges, to talk about two terms that are going to be necessary as I go through this so that you already have uh, an understanding of them so that when I start talking about them, I have to explain them uh, again in the middle of explaining the cartridge. The first one is uh, Wildcat. So what is a Wildcat cartridge? A Wildcat cartridge is basically a cartridge that somebody just makes, that someone creates, uh, and it's generally based on another cartridge. So one, at one time, for instance, there was no such thing as the 270, okay, which is so, so popular today, it's hard to think of a world where there was no 270. But there was a 3006. And somebody thought, hey, you know what, if we took this great big case with this 30 caliber bullet, and we necked the case down. And to neck down means simply to reform the part that holds the, the slug, the bullet itself, 
down to 27 caliber, we could run lighter bullets with a higher ballistic coefficient. Ballistic coefficient is just basically the ability to fly, right? So a flatter shooting bullet at a lighter weight in a smaller caliber with the same amount of powder, we can get higher velocity, further downrange energy, and we can get all kinds of great stuff by changing this, by messing with it. And most of the cartridges that we have today, that we look at as modern cartridges, started their life as Wildcats. Very few of them were created as a new cartridge. For instance, even the 3006, which is as is, is much of a traditional, original cartridge that we can get, has a lot of its origins in the Mauser cartridges, uh, like the 7 and 8 millimeter Mauser. It's not exactly the same, but it's where the idea for the cartridge originated. Uh, but when we look at Wildcats that have become commercial, we're talking about starting with the 3006, we get the 2506, which we'll talk about today, the 270, the 280, the 33806, also on the agenda today, the 35 Whalen, and, and the 400 Whalen. And there's a host of other Wildcats that never became commercial in between there. We look at the 308 as a parent cartridge. Well, the 308 was really started its life, even though it went straight into the commercial world. It was made by a commercial enterprise. It was a Wildcat. You take a 3006 case, you shorten it, you re-neck it down, and you make a shorter 3006. Then Wildcatters get a hold of it. Eventually, those become commercial. And from the 308, we get the 243, we get the 260, we get the 7mm 08, and we get the 358 Winchester. And, and wildcatting and the evolution from wildcat to commercial is where the vast majority of our cartridges come from. People take a cartridge and they shorten it or leave the length the same. They change the dimensions and they create a new cartridge. So I wanted you to know that. The next thing is I'm going to talk about some cartridges, at least one specifically today, that when it was originally created, people went, huh, not really that stellar, not really a big improvement. Why do we do this? And then later on, Due to something called burn rate of powders going down, that cartridge became stellar. That became something amazing, uh, that cartridge being the 2506. Burn rate, I think a lot of people would think if you had a, a powder that burned as fast as possible, that would get you the fastest velocity possible in your bullet. It's exactly the opposite. Slower burn rates specifically with rifles that have longer barrels. You have to realize these burn rates are measured in you know hundredths of a millisecond uh, in time because it's just the time from that slug, from it leaving the cartridge, exiting the barrel, that this stuff matters. But what they call really slow and really fast to the naked eye is meaningless difference. But in reality, there's a huge difference down at that speed level that matters. If you have a slower burning powder, the powder burns while the cartridge or while the, while the projectile is traveling through the barrel. If you get it perfect, you will burn 100% of the powder exactly as the bullet leaves the barrel. So you maintain the pressure curve at a high point for longer with limitations. Obviously, if the pressure goes too high, you can blow the barrel up or the breach out. But burn rate is extremely important with powder and velocity depending on how big the cartridge case is how long the barrel is, and some other factors that we won't get in today. Just know that the speed that powder burns is called burn rate, and slower burning rifle powders have enabled a lot of these magnums and a lot of these mid-bore cartridges to do more than they were able to do when they were first created. So let's get into these cartridges. Let's start off with one of my favorites of all time. This is called the 22 Hornet. The 22 Hornet actually began its illustrious career as a black powder cartridge. Uh, the, uh, the the it was a, a 22 uh, rimfire cartridge that was uh, jacked around with by a guy whose name you might hear quite a bit today, and that was Colonel Townsend Whalen and a guy named uh, Captain Watkins, and they started developing this cartridge in the uh, 1922 Springfield, which was a 22 rimfire uh, rifle that was used for training troops so that they could spend less money shooting ammunition. Eventually. Uh, this cartridge that they played around with, it, it was a Wildcat, uh, became commercialized uh, as it came over from black powder to smokeless powder, and uh, it was put into a variety of commercial uh, uh, weapons, and it became what we call the 22 Hornet. And we look at a 22 Hornet today, and you know it has an ability to push uh, what a, a 40 grain projectile around 2,700 feet per second. And we compare that to, you know, the uh, like a 223 that can scream that 40 grain projectile out 
at 36, 37, 3800 feet per second, or at 22,250, uh, they can they can breach the 4,000 foot per second barrier. And we say 2,700 feet per second, man, you might as well be shooting a 22 long rifle. Well, we forget that a 22 long rifle is in the 1,500 foot per second range. Even the 22 Magnum is pushing right around the 2,000 foot per second range. That 2,700 feet per second is actually a big improvement over either of the 22 rimfires. Plus, you can reload it. Plus, it can hold heavier and lighter bullets. Uh, can be loaded more uh, specialized uh, in nature. Uh, and it's very inexpensive to load because it uses low amounts of powder. So this cartridge has a ton going for it. And where, to me, where it really shines is for the varmint hunter that shoots, let's say, 225 yards or less. Especially the guy that maybe goes out and talks to farmers uh, in, you know, let's say the Northeast in Tennessee, Kentucky, where they have a lot of groundhog problems, and wants to get permission to hunt deer and, and, and pheasant and whatever in the regular hunting season. And one great way to do that is you go out and you meet these guys, you talk to them in the summertime when they're not being badgered by 20 or 30 hunters a week, and you say, hey, uh, I'm a varmint hunter, I like to shoot groundhogs, you got any groundhogs around here? And generally, if you live in an area where groundhogs are prevalent, you're going to hear, oh, hell yes, I hate those sons of bitches, kill as many of them as you want. And if you'll go out there and do that for the guy, well, generally speaking, you make a friend. And asking for permission to hunt on a friend's land is easier than asking for permission to hunt on a stranger's land. So this was something I did a lot of as a kid, uh, teenage kid, I guess I should say, you know, 16 once I got that car. And that's something I picked up from my uncle when I was a little bit younger. He'd say, let's go out and shoot some groundhogs and make some friends. So what makes the 22 uh, Hornet so much better than a 223 for that? It's very quiet in comparison. Um, it is far less uh, long range of a cartridge. So if you're hunting in like these areas now where you have farms, but they're kind of closer together, a little bit of residential stuff moving in, it's generally a lot more forgivable than being out there booming away, you know, with a 22250, which has a report almost as loud as a 308. Uh, it's uh, it's also adequate for the job. Out to that 200, 225 yard range, animals the size of uh, groundhog, even things like fox uh, and coyote, it's everything you could possibly need to do the job. It's an adequate tool. Is it a 300 yard cartridge? No. Could some people shoot it that far? Probably. Uh, but that's not, it's, it's honey, you know, it's honey hole, it's sweet spot. It's the 200 yard varmint cartridge. The important thing to understand is it came out when 200 yard varminting was unheard of. No one did that, or if they did, they were using a deer caliber to get the job done. It was the first really kind of hopped up 22. And, uh, when the 223, the 222, uh, 2250, 2250 came out, those three in particular, as they evolved, they kind of killed it off. They killed off another great cartridge you might want to look up someday called the 218B. But the 22 Hornet just stuck around. It didn't go away. It was like an old soldier that just decided, I'm going to still be here. And in recent times, people have begun to rediscover it as those big giant open fields have been replaced by much smaller fields. So that's its honey spot, and that's something I think you should really look at. It's available in bolt actions. It's available in uh, brake actions. NEF handy rifles are available in it. And the NEF handy rifle, to me, is not a superiorly accurate gun, but with low-pressure rounds like the 22 Hornet, they are tag drivers. And that ranges at 200 yards, they're tag drivers. So if you wanted a low-cost 22 Hornet, uh, it would be hard to go wrong with the uh, NEF handy rifle for that. The next one I have is the 2506, which is one I mentioned in kind of the warm-up here uh, that was originally created as a Wildcat version of the uh, 3006. Uh, the 2506 comes from a guy uh, named uh, Neater, uh, who ran the AO Neater Rifle Company, and he offered custom rifles for the cartridge called the 25 Neater, and that was simply, you took the 3006 and you necked it down to accept 250, uh, 2.5, 0.257 uh, caliber bullets. And there was a custom Wildcat. Uh, but that original cartridge, that original Neater cartridge, and the, the current 2506 are almost identical. There's a few minor differences. Uh, you wouldn't want, if you found some old 25 Neater, use it in your 2506. But it's pretty damn close to the same thing. But this is one of the cartridges where burn rate was so important. It was a cartridge ahead of its time. 
When people looked at the, the, the 3006 and they realized it had that huge case of powder and it had a real high velocity, uh, especially for the time. You're talking about the 1920s. Man, the 3006 was called an elephant gun by a lot of deer hunters. I got the elephant gun today, you know. And uh, people looked at that as these smaller uh, cartridges started to be evolved off of it, like the 270, and people started to come out with things like the 257 Roberts and have that really sharp, straight projectile out that, you know, that, that range close to uh, uh, what they call a, a dead range out to uh, close to 300 yards. They said, man, what could we do with the 3006 if we brought it down to that size? So people like Nieder bring this cartridge down to 257 caliber. And then they shoot it, and it barely shoots better than the 257 Roberts. Just barely pulls it off, just a few, maybe 150 feet per second, which is meaningless. Which we're going to get to how important that is in just a second when we look at some of the magnums and some of these cartridges. 150 feet per second in the field, um, you could do more by tweaking the ballistic coefficient and getting a more efficient bullet for your range than you will with 100 feet per second ever. So people said, "That nah, kind of." Flopped. It was a neat thing. It was different. You had a 25 meter. Not anybody else in Deer Camp had it. Uh, good antelope cartridge. But yeah, you might as well just have a 257 for a working man. Why would I bother? I can go buy a 257 Roberts off the rack. And then something happened. Powders began to come out with lower burn rates. And like one of the first ones was a powder called 4831. And as soon as that slower burn rate powder was available, all of a sudden. Uh, this cartridge that was, you know, going to push, uh, let's say, a 120 grain bullet in the 2,700 feet per second range at best, started pushing them out at over 3,000 feet per second. And people went, "Wow, this thing's got some potential." And with those slower burning powders, uh, stuff like uh, Reloader 19 uh, and 4350. Uh, people started looking at, well, what can we do with a 100-grain bullet, which in that caliber is plenty stiff enough for shooting antelope and smaller deer, anything other than a mule deer and the really big whitetails. And that, that thing smokes at 3,200, 3,300 feet per second. Now, how fast is that? Well, there's a cartridge called the uh, 257 Weatherby Magnum, and it uses about 10 grains more powder to get the same job done. And it can push a 100-grain bullet at 3,370 feet per second. That's about 70 feet per second faster. I've got to go buy a Weatherby. I've got to use that big, heavy, expensive cartridge. Uh, I have to get my ammunition from Weatherby or reload. Uh, and I get 70 feet per second. And I have to buy, and especially at the time that this was going on, I had to buy that very expensive Weatherby. You know, those low-cost Weatherbys didn't exist yet. Uh, you were dropping 1000 bucks for a Weatherby rifle. Uh, at a time when a thousand bucks was worth a hell of a lot more than it is today, so that tw that 2506 took off like a rocket. And because Americans have the bigger is better philosophy, over time the 2506 lost its appeal. People that wanted something with greater knockdown power uh, than a 243, for instance, just went ahead right up to that 270 to 7 millimeter magnum. Uh, the 300 magnums came in, and people said, well, now I can get that reach with the 30 caliber. And people forgot that this rifle, this cartridge, is just an amazing performer. Basically, the, the 2506 to me is a true magnum. It's a magnum rifle cartridge. We didn't put a belt on the case. We didn't make it fatter. We didn't make it knock the crap out of your shoulder and hurt you. We didn't push the recoil way up. We kept the recoil under a 3006, but we got magnum performance. And then here's the secret. If you take that round, and you know a lot of these magnums, these guys are walking around with 26-inch barrels, and then when you shoot a standard cartridge like a 2506, they're shooting 22, 24-inch barrels. If you extend that barrel out to the same length as the Weatherby, the 2506 and the 257 Weatherby are twins ballistically. With the, with the 2506 burning less powder, doing less abuse, costing less to buy, costing less to reload. Costing less for brass, having brass that can be made out of commonly available 3006 uh, cases. You can reform 270 cases. There's so many cases you can reform to make uh, a 2506. It's a great prep around for the, the guy that hunts pronghorn and deer out on the plains in Wyoming and Montana. It is almost perfection. It's not really an elk round. It'll work, but it really isn't. But for that size game down, it is a beautiful thing that was created that we've just forgotten about.
So, if you're that guy, consider that cartridge. If you're anywhere where you take shots at deer uh, consistently over 200 yards, and you're not where the deer are really big, like up in Maine, where you've got 350-pound whitetails, um, this is really something to take a look at. And to me, it boggles my mind that America has kind of turned their back on something that was made so perfect. Uh, the next one is a very, very old cartridge. Uh, this is something that I have a, a great love and affinity for. And understand that other than the history behind it, ballistically, everything I'm about to tell you about this cartridge is also almost the same for another uh, very modern uh, cartridge that just never got popular called the 260 Remington. So this cartridge, some of you now already know what it is since I said 260 Remington, and that is the 6.5 by 55 millimeter Swedish Mauser. You talk about something that's old. This cartridge was originally adopted in 1894. It's the service cartridge of both Sweden and Norway. And uh, it was originally chambered in, in their Mausers. And uh, one thing I don't think you'll find a lot of information about. Back then, uh, a lot of the armies still fought on horseback. And one of the prerequisites for a cartridge was that it be able to take out a horse. Because if you have a cavalryman charging you, uh, he's a lot harder to hit than his horse. But if you can put around into the withers of that horse and knock the horse down, the cavalryman is now nothing more than an infantryman. Uh, and probably less armed than an infantryman because he was relying on his horse. He also may be pinned under his horse and he's definitely in trouble and he's easy pickings. So people weren't really hip on this dropping the caliber size back then. But the Swedes being geniuses knew if I make the bullet heavy and long, even though the caliber size goes down, I'm going to get around that travels really far and penetrates. And then if I get good penetration, I get killing power. And if I get moderate velocity penetration, and this, I've talked before about the magic formula. And to me, the magic formula is when you get a bullet with a sectional density close to .290, and, and with the... Uh, with the 140 grain 6.5 millimeters, it's .289, so it's you know it's it might as well be right there. Uh, with a velocity in the neighborhood of 2,400 to 2,600 feet per second out of the muzzle, and what happens there is you get this bullet with this immense penetrating power, and that 2,600 foot per second range it still delivers quite a bit of energy. But what we do is we find this sweet spot between, you know, the, the slow cartridge that just kind of dumps its energy and peters out, doesn't really expand, and but but doesn't really exit usually, and it, it just, it's not enough for the size game. It might be adequate for a smaller animal, but when we move up in size, it kind of peters out. And these magnums that just explode and fragment and, and, and do a shallow wound channel and do a lot of meat damage, or they blow right through. And if you think about a pellet gun, we take a pellet gun and we put up uh, a soda can at a distance, and I pump it twice, and I shoot the pellet at the can. I probably put a big dent in the can, and it falls over. There's your light rifle caliber. And then I pump it up ten times, I shoot the can, the can doesn't even move. The pellet just goes right through there. That's your magnum rifle caliber. Nothing wrong with it, but boy, it does a lot of hydrostatic damage to the meat as it goes through. Now I pump it four, six pumps, somewhere in there. I find the sweet spot for this pellet gun at this range, and I fire it, and it rips through the can. That moderate velocity is strong enough to penetrate, but it also delivers its energy as it penetrates. And that's what you get with these cartridges like this. And some of the other ones that fit in it, 190 grain, bull 190 grain bullets out of the 3006, pretty much have to reload those to make it happen. The 33806 that we'll talk about, the 35 Whalen, the 7mm Mauser, a lot of these cartridges have that sweet spot, the 7mm 08. Uh, and that sweet spot, I did a, a post in the forum about it. I'll put a link to that post today in today's show notes. This is the cartridge that did it first. And it did it all the way back in 1894 as a military cartridge. Uh, the Swedish guys were pretty slick, pretty smart. This cartridge and the 260 right along with it, loaded with those 140 grain bullets, is absolutely more deadly than paper ballistics will ever lead you to believe. This cartridge, now these are Scandinavian moose, which are smaller than our American moose, uh, but they're still very big animals. This cartridge has probably killed more moose than any other cartridge on the planet. It's also used to hunt caribou uh, very effectively in those Norwegian areas. 
Uh, it came to the United States after World War II heavily as surplus. You used to be able to buy three Swedish Mausers for like a hundred bucks. Those days are gone. If you can find one now, it's probably better off as a collectible, but if you find one that's already been kind of messed around with and you customize that into a sporter rifle, it is one of the most outstanding uh, weapons you will ever find, even if it's a hundred years old. It is still absolutely a classic. Um, this cartridge, everything from deer up across North America, and I would say other than bears, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't hesitate to hunt black bear with it, especially, you know, the smaller black bears in the south and all. Uh, if you're in a place where a grizzly might show up, you want a bigger hole. I'll just put it to you that way. But for the medium game hunter, uh, and, and even though you're going to read all kinds of articles that say not to use it on elk, uh, if you're not going to be hunting long distances, it doesn't have quite that reach that some of the bigger calibers do out past 250 yards on a big game animal like that. But if you're hunting elk and you're in timber and you're going to be taking 150, 200 yard shots, you know, that or a 358 Winchester, beautiful cartridge. Anybody that doubts the killing power of the 6.5 millimeter Swede simply hasn't experienced it. And that, again, goes right for the 260 Remington with those 140 grain bullets. Uh, last on the Swede, the recoil is almost non-existent. It's like a gentle push. Um, a lot of folks that are trying to figure out what to do for that kid uh, to get him shooting deer that has a little bit of recoil shyness, um, I think this is superior to the 3030 Winchester. I think it's much superior to the 243, which also has a lot, lot, very low recoil signature, but doesn't have anywhere near uh, the knockdown power or the versatility uh, that the 6.5 has for a lifelong cartridge for a deer cartridge. 243 is a fine cartridge. It's not a 6.5 Swede. It's not a 260 Remington. Uh, if you're looking for that middle game caliber and you want something different, take a look at that. The next one is probably the most popular uh, cartridge out of the oddballs that I picked today, uh, and that is the 280 Remington. The 280 Remington is another child of the 3006. It's another uh, cartridge that really began to show its potential as those slower-burning powders came out. The 280 Remington is a 7mm cartridge. 28 caliber and 7mm uh, are basically identical. And what we did when we made the 280 Remington was look for something with more ballistics performance than the 7mm Mauser. And it happened. Uh, the 280 was originally created in 1957. It was available in uh, Remington's uh, semi-automatic rifle called the 740, which was just an outstanding and very innovative rifle, in my opinion. It's very close to uh, a European uh, cartridge called the 7x64 uh, Bernanke, and uh, very close to a Wildcat that was out there called the 7mm 06. Obviously, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Remington also eventually put this in their bolt action rifles, their 760 uh, pump action. That's 760 pump. If you can find older 760 pumps, buy them. Beautiful gun. Uh, very well made. 3006, uh, 280. I don't care what it's in. If you can get your hands on one, there were even a few of those I think that floated around uh, briefly in uh, 35 Remington. If you can ever find one of them, buy it because I'll buy it from you. Um, but great round, great, great weapons that it was put in. But. What happened is the 7mm Magnum came out, I believe it was 1979 if I remember right. And when the 7mm Magnum came out, it just blew away the 280 in the mind of the consumer and in the marketing. The 280 actually went away for a while, and then Remington brought it back and called it the 7mm Express to try to beef it up a little bit, to, to, to give it some more spin. And then that went away and it came back as the 280 again. So we have rifles that are out there called 280s, rifles that have label of 7mm Express. They use the same ammunition. It's been changed on the public several times. None of this helped from a public relations standpoint. But there's one thing I can say about this cartridge from its inception right through till today. It is one of the finest all-around calibers for big game in North America that there is. It strikes a gorgeous balance point between the smaller bores we've talked up to now and going all the way to a 30 caliber. It has massive long-range performance, massive knockdown power, and there really ain't a hill of beans difference ballistically between it and a 7mm Magnum. Now, someone that loves 7mm Magnums is pissed off at me right now, but hold the phone, folks. 
uh, with heavy bullets uh, in the, let's say, 160 grain range, there's about a 150 feet per second difference between the 280 and the 7mm Magnum. And I'll tell you what, shooting at big game at a range of 300 to 350 yards um, with either one, having the 7mm Magnum isn't going to make you able to take that game if you can't do it with the 280 Remington. And the animal hit with that slug is not going to be able to tell that 75 to 150 feet per second difference. And as we look at some of the lighter calibers uh, into the you know the 120 grain range, the difference in velocities uh, are are very similar. We also have to again consider the fact that a lot of the velocities measured out of a 280 Remington are coming out of 24 inch barrels, and the 7 millimeter mag are coming out of 26 inch barrels. Uh, that extra length costs you in weight. You've got a longer action with that magnum action for the 7 millimeter. To me, the 280, instead of making the, the, the 280 irrelevant when the 7 millimeter magnum came out, the 280 really makes the 7 millimeter uh, magnum irrelevant. Uh, if you want to go a lot faster, you can. There's some 7 millimeter magnum cartridges out there uh, that push the upper envelope of what's possible. And I don't think you need them, but if you want that, it's there. But you don't get much with a 7 mag over a 280. I'll go a step further, and I think I'm going to shock some people here. I dearly love the 3006. I own several rifles in it. I don't even own a 280. But if you hard-pressed me and said, which of the two cartridges is a better all-around cartridge in North America, I think I might have to give the edge to the 280. With certain ballistic combinations, certain uh, uh, bullets that are available in 7 millimeter that have superior ballistic coefficients in that really sweet spot the 7mm occupies. It has greater downrange performance than the 3006. The di diameter of the bullet, the, the, point two, the .02 caliber difference, isn't that much. It's an absolute deadly round. It has amazing uh, uh, potential out past 300 yards. It is every bit the elk cartridge the 7mm Magnum could ever possibly be. It is superior uh, in performance to the 7mm Mauser. It is easily made from 3006 brass. The ammunition is plentiful and available and, and inexpensive. Uh, there's a wide variety of rifles out there that take the cartridge. Uh, is it as made in as many platforms as a 7mm Magnum? No. But what do you need? You need one good one. And a Remington 700 is a damn fine rifle. And a man with a 280 and a 7, uh, Remington 700 uh, that knows how to place those bullets the right way is a deadly combination out to, I'll say, 400 yards or more if he really knows what he's doing, if he's really mastered his weapon. It is, again, one of these places where we found this point where we don't have to make the shooter be abused with heavy recoil. Uh, a 280 Remington's recoil is very much like that of a 3006. Maybe a little tiny bit sharper due to slightly higher pressures, but not much. If you can shoot a 3006 comfortably, you can shoot a 280 comfortably. I can't say the same about a 7mm mag. I used to own one. I got tired of the thing beating the tar out of me and went, my 06 does everything I need. I don't need this anymore, and I traded it for a pretty nice little 308. Um, so I've had my, my brief affair with the 7 mag, and I didn't like it. I've shot a few people's uh, 280s. I love shooting them. Uh, it is that balance point that we reach that we really don't know you need to go any further. Also, remember, I said that there was that sweet spot, that honey hole, uh, with that 2,600 uh, feet per second range uh, with a sectional density of about 290 or higher. Well, when you take and you load up the really heavy stuff in the... Uh, The, two, the 280 Remington, that's a 175-grain bullet. It has a huge sectional density, .310. That's a penetrating round. And it has a standard muzzle velocity at 2,600 feet per second. Even if you back off to the 160-grain bullet, you're looking at a sectional density of 283 right there with a muzzle velocity of 2,800 feet per second. Load that down a little bit where you don't need the extreme long reach uh, of the weapon, and you're also hitting that sweet spot. Everything has compromises, checks, and balances. But 280, another beautiful cartridge. Another child of the 3006 that we're going to talk about. This is the 33806, and to me, this is what the 280 is to uh, the, the, the small bore up to 30 caliber. The 338 is for the medium bore. 
the medium bore that's between you know the African calibers, the 375, the 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 416s, 458s, and the 30 caliber, you know the 25 through 30 caliber, uh, up to eight millimeter range. Uh, just stepping up a little bit bigger, a little bit heavier bullets, uh, things that are designed to put down big animals like big elk, 700-pound bull elk, uh, things that are designed to put down the big moose, the big Alaskan moose, uh, things that you would take on a bear hunt and uh, you wouldn't feel outgunned even though somebody that wrote some magazine sometime told you you were. Uh, you, you, don't, you know, people say, oh, I don't want to face the charging grizzly uh, with a 33806 that's not powerful enough. I don't want to face the charging grizzly with a 50 caliber sniper rifle. I don't want one of those to begin with. If I have to do it, uh, I'd probably rather have uh, a semi-automatic shotgun with an extended magazine loaded up with slugs uh, than anything else at that close range. And I would just keep pulling triggers until the damn thing went down. Um, but when we, when we hunt... And we hunt big game. We generally don't try to make it charge us. And when you look at the ballistics performance of the 33806, it is the do anything anywhere in North America round for the bigger game. When we say, well, well, I'm a deer hunter and I want one gun to do everything, it's still a great choice because it's a little bit more moderate velocity. It's got these heavier bullets. It does fit that magic ballistics formula that I talked about. High sectional density, moderate velocity, very, very well. And because of that, when you take that same cartridge that can be used on a bull elk and you shoot a 120-pound whitetail in South Texas, it doesn't blow up the meat. You get a nice pass-through, a good drop of energy. You get a stone-dead animal if you do your job right, and you don't blow the damn thing up. I... Went hunting down in South Texas uh, many years ago. The first time I went, I took a 308. I took some rapidly expanding 150 uh, grain cartridges, standard of the run of the mill stuff for uh, white tailed deer. And some of those smaller deer, I mean, the damage done and, and the fragmentation was absolutely obscene. And when I went down there with a 306 uh, shooting 190 grain Hornadies, uh, and I got those nice pass-through kill shots without blowing everything up. It's the same scenario. You do want some expansion. You do want some energy dump. But you don't want uh, giant varmint ballistics performance, which I think we're going into that with some of these SSTs and things like that, uh, these highly frangible but strong bullets uh, on these deer, especially in a lot of the southern states where a 150-pound deer is huge and a 110-pound buck is average. How much killing do you need for these little animals? The beauty with that 33806 is if you're a traveling guy, you you hunt South Texas and you hunt Montana and you hunt everything in between and you want to carry one gun, it's beautiful for that because it's going to rack that big elk. Now, where did it come from? Um, this is another place where we uh, we hear Elmer Keith's name. Uh, there was a, a, a guy named Elmer Keith that did a lot of, lot of cool stuff with cartridges. He used to do a lot of writing as well. Had a feud with uh, one of my other favorites, Shaq O'Connor. Well, he got together one day with a guy named Charles O'Neill and another guy named Don Hopkins. And they just found that the uh, 30 caliber stuff and 7 millimeter stuff wasn't adequate in their eyes for elk. They wanted a bigger, heavier cartridge. So they took the 3006 case and they necked it up. Uh, to 333, not 338 caliber initially. And they took the cartridges that were designed, or the bullets that were designed for a, an African cartridge called the 333 Jeffrey, uh, which were a very heavy, uh, bullet, uh, as far as their, uh, their jacket. They didn't expand well. And because of that, this was another one of those great wildcats that was before its time. Well, when, in 1958, Winchester came out with a 338 Winchester Magnum. And when they did, all the bullet manufacturers started making a wide variety of bullets ranging from, you know, 180 grains up to 250 grains for that 338 Winchester. When Winchester put their name on it, made it commercial, they knew that cartridge was going to take off. And to be fair to the 338 Winchester, it is a beautiful cartridge, especially for the Alaskan hunter. It is a uh, long-range shots on sheep, lots of knockdown power on a great big grizzly bear. But... Much as the, the, the 280 is to the 7 mag, the 33806 is to the 338 Winchester. What would you say if I told you, in return for getting your snot knocked out by the heavy recoil of the 338 Winchester Magnum, uh, in return for putting an extra 15 grains of powder in the case, 
in return for spending probably about $10 more per box uh, for cartridges, uh, if, especially if you reload. Uh, in return for all of that, that you will get uh, with 225 grain bullets, which is a really nice sweet spot for this cartridge, about 150 feet per second more velocity out of the Winchester mag than the very soft shooting uh, as far as recoil goes, 33806. 150 feet per second. Is it really worth it? I don't think it is, personally. Uh, much as I think that the, uh, the, the the 280 is a superior weapon for the average shooter, I think the 33006 is a uh, is an a-, a better weapon for the average shooter than the uh, 338 Win because it's easier to shoot well. And that 150 feet per second isn't going to make a lot of difference. And there is a very big difference uh, in 225 and 250 grain bullets from a, a 33806 and a, and a 3, uh, 338 Winchester Mag, it's it's very noticeable. It, it, it's uh, it's something that will affect the shooting capability of the average shooter. It will affect their confidence level in the gun. And when we look at downrange energy potential out to 300 meters with uh, with both of these, the 330, uh, 338 Mag absolutely takes more energy out there. But the uh, 06 takes out every bit and every pound of energy necessary to kill anything that walks in North America to 300 yards. So what more do you want? The problem with this cartridge is it is commercial now. You can go out and buy guns for it. There's not a lot of guns that shoot it. There's not a lot of choices. Uh, there's not a lot of ammunition available for it. And the ammunition that's available off the store shelves is very expensive because it's not, um, it's not that popular. But another route is to go out and get an action for a 7mm, uh, or sorry, like a Remington 700 or a Winchester Model 70 and have one custom built. And uh, if you do that, you have something that's unique to you and reload. And if you reload, it's as cheap to reload 33806 as it is, as it is to reload anything else. And uh, to me, again, you're hitting a sweet spot. If you want almost everything I said about the 33806, do you want affordable factory ammunition? You want more cho- choices from a factory uh, firearm standpoint? Then let me throw the bonus in today: 35 Whalen, uh, which was uh, a development by Colonel Townsend Whalen, followed very much the development of the 330806. Guy puts it together; it turns out to be really good. Uh, newer components become available; it becomes commercialized by Remington eventually, uh, and there's a lot more choices in 35 Whalen out there. So. You can do it. The thing about the Whalen at that 35 caliber, it doesn't have quite the downrange ballistic performance of the 33806. They're very close uh, at shorter ranges. You got a little bit bigger of a, of a, a caliber profile out of 35, so it's actually maybe a better short range weapon. But it's so close, it's really meaningless. But if you wanted that downrange 300 meter performance. The 33806 will outperform. Both of them absolutely outstanding, though. Um, the next one is going to be one that you're going to go, huh, I thought this was on rifle calibers, and that's the 44 Magnum. And Elmer Keith rears his head again. 44 Magnum started out, Elmer Keith and his buddies started experimenting with, can we make a really great handgun cartridge for hunting? Big game, deer and stuff like that. So they went out and got the heaviest framed uh, revolvers they could for 44 Special. Said there's a lot more room in that case. Let's start loading it up. Let's start pushing it. Let's see how far we can push it without damaging the cartridge, without getting too much pressure, without damaging the, the, the gun, uh, without any danger to the shooter. And they started to make heavier and heavier 44 Special loads. But this was never going to take on commercially. It just couldn't because how could a manufacturer load these heavy 44 Special loads put them on the marketplace, and some guy comes along that has a lighter-framed uh, 44 Special Revolver that can't handle the pressure, puts it in their lawsuit city, right? So eventually, and, and it always seems to me uh, that, at least back in the day, so to speak, Remington was the people that, that were willing to take the risk. So Remington said, let's commercialize this thing. Let's make the cartridge case a little bit longer so they can't accidentally be put into 
uh, a uh, 44 special, we'll call it a 44 Magnum, and we'll load that sucker up and we'll make these heavy loads available to everybody in America. And you know the rest of the story. Dirty, Dirty Harry had one, the most powerful handgun in the world at the time. It's been surpassed now, but for a long time it was. Uh, law enforcement looked at it. Most of the law enforcement officers couldn't shoot it well. Too heavy of a recoil, expensive, too large frameable weapon for law enforcement use on a day-to-day basis. So it kind of went away from that. But the handgun hunter had found his nirvana. And handgun hunters all across North America go out, and what do they shoot? Black bear, grizzly bear, elk. Moose, biggest game in North America. They shoot it, they kill it well, it performs beautifully. And then someone puts it into a rifle, they take it into the deer woods, and then the old timer looks at it and goes, ah, 44 Magnum in a rifle, that's a pea shooter. So it's a cannon in a pistol. We put it into a rifle with a 16 or an 18 inch barrel. We get another 200 feet per second in velocity out of the slug because of more efficiency in that longer barrel. And now it's a pea shooter. And you just shake your head at the American consumer and go, why don't you guys understand this? Why don't you guys get this? To me, the 44 Magnum is a beautiful rifle caliber. I have a Marlin 1894 lever action rifle in 44 Magnum. It is my favorite gun to shoot. It really is. I like it more than any of my semi-autos, my uh, you know my mil-type, military style rifles. Uh, I like it more than my bolt actions. It is what I consider a redneck assault rifle. Nine rounds in about six seconds if you want to shoot it that fast. And the flexibility when you start reloading the 44 Magnum is unbelievable. For, for big game and for, for consistently hitting your target, it's a 100 to 120 yard cartridge. I can shoot it further, but you have to really, the, the, the trajectory becomes so rainbow. If you absolutely know it's 150 yards away, you can drop the round in every single time. But if you estimate 150, and that deer's at 165 or 135, you're missing. And if it's at 140 and you estimate 150, you're probably crippling. Because that bullet's just screaming to the ground at that point. But out to 150, uh, out to 100, it is, uh, it is very flat shooting. As you get out to 200, it's just tumbling to the ground. But that 100-yard range, 125-yard range, beautiful. For the deer hunter in the eastern woods that generally shoots his deer between 25 and 50 yards away, I don't know what else you could possibly want. Same for the black bear hunter in those woods. And any other game that you're going to come across. For the elk hunter, it's not my first choice, but if you're hunting you know, the elk that hang out in the dark timber in, in the brush country, and you're not going to be taking those long shots, is it adequate? Absolutely. First choice, no, but definitely adequate. Now, um, I'll put a link to a show that I did in the past about pistol caliber carbines and a special load that I've come up with for the 44 Magnum. It is not a special load for the 44 Magnum, really. It is a published load out of the old Lee manual, the old red Lee manual they don't make anymore, uh, for the lightest 44 special I could find shooting 300 grain bullets. When you load that up, nothing dangerous about it. It's not a squib load. Again, this is a published load. Uh, you get a, a 44 caliber 300 grain slug traveling at just about 1,000 feet per second which is very, very deadly, especially after about 50 yards before the accuracy starts to leave you. And you get a round that when you fire it, it sounds like this. It's about as loud as it is. That might have been a little bit louder. I'll put it to you this way. When I fire those hand loads, I can actually hear the hammer fall and the primer struck by the firing pin. I can hear that sound, not over, but you know the, 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 the shot doesn't cover it up. Uh, it's not that the shot is louder, but I can actually hear the firing pin fall. It, it, that, that's pretty outstanding for how quiet. That's not with a suppressor. All right. Now, for the survivalist, that round is deadly on deer, especially with head or neck shots out to 50 yards, no problem. It wouldn't shoot much further. It is pretty much equivalent to taking a 45 caliber muzzle loader out. Uh, black powder, you know, front stuff or, stuff or muzzle loader. They're used on deer all the time. You can shoot a squirrel in the head with it without blowing them up because that big heavy slug moving that slow isn't going to explode. You hit them in the body, maybe you still have the back legs. So it can be used on anything from small game to big game with a very quiet report. It's still an absolute deadly self-defense weapon at relatively short ranges. I sure as hell ain't going to stand in front of one and get shot. I've shot it at two pieces of oak 4x4, four four, two pieces of oak 4x4 four four nailed together. That's seven inches, because a 4x4 four four is three and a half inches, seven inches of solid oak at 25 yards, and it completely 
passed through with very little expansion with a hard cast lead slug. That one load makes the 44 absolutely special. Now, I can load it with 265 grain flat points from Hornady that were made for the 444 Marlin, and I've got a sledgehammer. I can load it with the 240 grain factory stuff that's out there, and it's adequate for deer and smaller black bear. Um, and anything and everything in between. I can shoot varmints with it with lighter, or, or even those cartridges if I want to, as long as I don't want anything to do with them, I just want them dead. And I can even load up uh, 44 shot shells, and out to about 10 yards, I've got a little mini shotgun. Uh, not for people, right? It's not a self-defense shotgun, but for things like grouse uh, and small game birds and small rabbits, it's about a 10-yard shotgun that performs pretty consistently from my experimentation. That's pretty awesome for a rifle cartridge. It's actually a pistol cartridge. So I wanted to get that one in today. The last one I want to talk about today is the uh, 4570. I look at the 4570 as the old soldier that won't die. It just won't go away. And there was, uh, you know, the famous quote um, by MacArthur: "Old soldiers never die; they just fade away." Well, the 4570 won't die, and it also won't fade away. It just sticks around, and it's because. Of a lot of things. I think one cowboy action shooting with some of the long range stuff, uh, not really a cowboy action shooting, but the black powder long range uh, uh, silhouette shooting uh, and the old west style stuff with, with black powder cartridges have really uh, reignited America's love for this old buffalo cartridge, this old military cartridge. But the other side of it is, when you take this cartridge and you load it up in something like a Marlin lever action rifle, where you can load modern loads with it, and you can push way beyond the capabilities of the original cartridge, and you can push uh, cartridge uh, a, a sledgehammer, a 45 grain sledgehammer, a 45 caliber sledgehammer uh, that weighs 350 grains uh, out of the barrel, and you can smoke that thing out there at over 2,000 feet per second. Well, you're dumping, you know, like two and a half tons of friggin' energy into your target. It's uh, it's like a light version of the 458 Magnum. It really is. I mean, there's a big difference between a 4570 and a 458 Magnum. Um, but it's the closest thing to getting there without killing yourself with recoil. Heavily loaded 4570s are actually pretty stiff recoiling rounds. But the 300 grain stuff loaded up to around 2,000, 2,100 feet per second, I believe if you can shoot a 3006, you can shoot that. What a deer cartridge. What a bear cartridge. What a close range elk cartridge. Um, what a connection to the past. The 4570 is, again, it's an old soldier. It's an ancient cartridge. Um, it was first introduced in the 1873 Springfield rifle. It was known as the trapdoor rifle. It was a military uh, cartridge. The first military ammo was a 405 grain lead bullet uh, with, uh, with about 70 grains of black powder. So what we had was a 45 caliber 70 grains of black powder, hence the 4570. And there were some other things out there like the 45100, uh, which was a huge long cigar shaped cartridge. It's never really been moder modernized. But the 4570 to me allows me, and I just have an inexpensive NEF handy rifle in this, no scope on it, just a plain Jane set of iron sights like they come, damn fine accurate out to 100 yards. And when I take that big cigar cartridge and I drop it in there, it's almost like a 410 shot shell, for God's sakes. And I fire that, and I've taken some bore with it and a few deer. It's like connecting back to those early pioneers that went out and unfortunately slaughtered the buffalo. Uh, but for all that was wrong with that, there was a certain nostalgia back then. And there were a lot of people that weren't out there slaughtering buffalo. They were settling this country, going from one place to another. And once the the musket, the, the Kentucky rifle, the, the front stuffers, fell out of uh, a favor, uh, the man who was out there with that rifle was carrying either that lever action Henry or Winchester, or was carrying that trapdoor Springfield. Uh, and there, there is a connection there that's pretty cool. So, uh, 4570, absolutely adequate for anything that walks or crawls in North America. Never going to say it's something you're going to want to shoot uh, any kind of small game with. But for deer with the 300 grain bullets up to, to, to grizzly bear, uh, as long as you're not out there trying to do that with a single shot in case you do get charged, uh, I don't think you can go wrong with the 4570. 
So much so that Marlin came out with the 450 Marlin, which just enabled them to introduce ammunition that was loaded to the full potential of the 4570 without worrying that somebody would take it and drop it into a trapdoor Springfield and blow their brains out with an exploding action. Um, but if you have a modern action and if you shoot 4570s, you definitely, absolutely, definitely, uh, you need to be reloading because it gets expensive otherwise. Um, you can load that up to every bit of performance you need. In fact, I found with my hand loading of the 4570 that my shoulder wears out before the cartridge does. I get to a point where I go, that's a hot enough load. That's going to do anything I need. I don't need any more abuse from my gun when I fire it, especially a light 7-pound uh, NEF handy rifle. So there you go. Uh, seven underrated center fire rifle cartridges. Pool guy showed up and Max tried to kill him again. I paused and got that out, so it gave me a little bit of a, an interruption. So hopefully I stayed on point for you most of this one. Um, I apologize for the server issues we've had in the past. I think we're past that. I hope you guys continue to enjoy the show. When I do shows like this and I give you this plethora of things from 2200 up to 4570, here's my hope that one of them spoke to you and maybe... One of you out there decides, I'm going to go get that 22 Hornet. Uh, I'm going to get that 6.5mm six, 6. suite. I'm going to go get a 338.06 if I have to build one. But I want to preserve these cartridges. I hope today what I spoke to you about is their history and their place in the world and their connection back to a time when everything wasn't mass-produced. And people went out and they looked at something and said, what can I do to make it a little bit better? Because that's what our prepping's all about. We do everything we can, and then we look at it, and we go, what can we do to make it a little bit better? We plant that garden, we tweak it, we make it a little bit better. You know, we, we put the food storage in place, and we tweak it, we make it a little bit better. You know, we build that solar system, and then we tweak it, and we make it a little bit better. Well, that's what these great men did with these old cartridges. And they've been left around, and most of them that I talked about today are close to 100, if not 75 to 100 years old today. And they're still here, and they're still every bit as effective as they ever were. So grab on to one, preserve it, and make part of American history part of your history. Hand it down to your kids, hand it down to your nephew, your niece. But make sure that these legacies don't discontinue just because everybody's bought into Magdalena. This has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. Tom Hanks up. 40 minutes later. Nobody up there cares, they're living 